Hello and welcome to Politics 411, the King's College London Politics Society podcast. My name is Sienna Joshi, I'm your host, and today we're going to have two lovely guests on to discuss with us the Australian referendum, as well as the cabinet reshuffle in the UK, and what the ceasefire vote means for the future of the Labour Party. So, we have Florence today to discuss with us the Australian referendum, so if you'd like to introduce yourself. Hi, I'm Florence, I study international relations, and uh, I'm a topic editor at The Dialogue. Perfect, so if you could kind of explain to our listeners in a nutshell, kind of what was involved in the Australian referendum and maybe who the key players were? Yeah, of course. So the referendum was about changing the constitution of Australia to recognise the first peoples of Australia. So that's the Aboriginal and the Torres Strait Islander peoples. And uh, what was the outcome of that? Uh, The outcome of the election was that uh, the yes vote failed um, so it didn't get enough support and the referendum failed to pass. And why do you think that is? Why, why do you think people weren't in favour of that passing? Uh, I think that there was a lot of misinformation spread by the no campaign. Um, so that would be uh, made up of like the Liberal Party and their coalition supporters and the Rural National Party. Um, and lots of previous MPs, such as like John Howard and T- Tony Abbott, um, came out against um, the referendum. And so I think this had a lot of impact on public opinion. What kind of things did they come out with and tell people? Uh, so, uh, for example, one of the key figures in the No campaign was the Senator Jacinta Napinjinipa. I probably said that wrong, Price. Um, shadow, who's a shadow councillor for the Indigenous Australians um, and she's an Indigenous woman herself um, and she didn't believe in the um, establishment of this section in the constitution in creating um, a voice for the people of Aus- the First Nations people of Australia um, and she argued that the voters should vote no because the proposal would divide the nation um, and they raised concerns about there being a lack of detail in the proposal. Well, what do you think? What What do you think if you were voting in the referendum? What would you have said? Uh, I think I asked some of my um, family members about it, um, and Australians who I know, um, and they all seem to be for it. Um, but I don't think a lot of them really knew much about the detail of the proposal, which I think was a reason why lots of people didn't want to vote for it. Um, me personally, I think that it's a would have been a really good step forward in um, creating uh, more of a conversation and even just recognising Indigenous people in Australia. Um, but I think it's very obvious that the government was never... I mean, the current government, the Albanese government, was um, for it and it was part of the, his election campaign. Um, but I just didn't, don't think that they had the political support or even the public support um, to, to do that. So since the referendum, what's the like public kind of reaction been? And ha- have people kind of taken to it well or not so much? Uh, I would say that the public's reaction has been disappointed but not surprised maybe from more the more liberal side of the spectrum. Um, 
lots of conservative voters uh, probably see this as a sign that the status quo will like stay the same. Um, overall, I think it's just quite problematic because it's just Australia staying at the same, um, the constitution is staying the same. There's no change in even recognising that the indigenous people were lived on the land first. Um, it's very different to other uh, nations such as New Zealand or Canada where the First Nations people have treaties with the, go- with the government. So, um, I mean, I guess we could say that we saw sort of after the Brexit referendum in the UK that after a few years people started kind of doubling back on what they maybe voted when the actual referendum happened. So do you think something like that could happen in Australia? Uh, I think, yeah, this, if, uh, this issue comes up quite a lot in um, Parliament and in public debate. Uh, the original referendum came from a statement by, I'm not sure of the actual name, but it was a statement by a group of Indigenous uh, senators uh, who wanted to bring this issue up again. So I think similar to the Brexit referendum in that sense, with the issue of the Europe, uh, Britain leaving the EU, it's an issue that's divided the country since before this issue was brought up now. Uh, what do you think would be kind of a, a good next step, maybe for Indigenous people in Australia to kind of help them to be more heard in Australian politics? I think that since this, uh, this change in the constitution hasn't gone through, I can see how um, the, the no campaign side uh, from senators such as Lydia Thorpe, who argued that the voice would be like a powerless advisory body and thinks it would do little to change the First Peoples. I think that her idea of having a treaty with the Indigenous peoples could maybe be a more popular way within the communities themselves um, to go forward on this issue. Is there any other kind of final thoughts that you have about this? Yeah, just to re-emphasise the point that I think this issue will probably come back maybe even every election campaign, uh, especially for the Albanese government if they want to get re-elected. But I think it will be difficult to convince people that anything will actually change because this is quite a resounding national failure uh, on a policy that could have helped elevate the voice of Indigenous Australians when they literally have none. So you reckon it's kind of like a reoccurring topic in politics, but people are still sort of sceptical as to whether it's actually going to happen or some kind of change is going to take place? Yeah, I'd say overall, not to generalise too much, but uh, Australia isn't really, I don't think, socially ready for that kind of uh, acknowledgement of their colonial past. Yeah, and how do you think that they can sort of move towards being socially ready? I think that it would have to maybe come from the grassroots up. I think it's mainly about convincing Indigenous communities what would be in their best interests. I mean, I'm not Indigenous, so I can't really speak on behalf of Mm. them, but I would say that Indigenous politicians uh, really have quite a high role in doing this um, to really foster a sense of trust in their communities to then bring this up to a higher political level, yeah. Yeah, okay. Well, thank you so much for coming on to talk to us about this. Um, I really appreciate it. You've got some really good insights about this topic.
Well, thank you for having me. So we've got Josh here today to talk to us about the cabinet reshuffle. So hello, would you like to introduce yourself? Yeah, hi. Um, thanks for having me on, Siona. It's a massive privilege. Uh, we're really, really excited to be pumping out loads of editions of the podcast this year. Um, so many exciting things that come out of this space, and I'm just really happy to be in one of the first episodes of it. Um, I think we've got hugely exciting things coming up. Yeah, I, I agree. <laughs> so, um, yeah, cabinet reshuffle. So the main things are obviously Suella Bravman getting sacked, and David Cameron is back. So let's let's talk about Suella Bravman first. She's threatening to release some pretty incriminating information about Rishi Sunak. Do you think she will do it? I think, to an extent, what Suella Braverman has done so well is have that level of unpredictability about her. Mm. Almost the only predictable element that she has now is that she's going to do something that Sunak or number 10 probably won't like. Um, And so on that, I think Sunak definitely has to plan for these things to be released. He has to try and mitigate it. He has to try and safeguard himself and try and build up a narrative that is stronger, more evident, more witnessed than what Suella can possibly do. But I mean, this is going on at a time where like, there is so much in government that, you know, with the uh, Sir Patrick Valance diary stuff that's all coming out, there is so much damning evidence coming from so many aspects of so many inquiries um, at the minute that I actually don't know kind of what the significance of these things being released are unless they are really, really damning. So both Suella and Sunak really need to play their cards right on this, basically. Yeah, I I definitely agree. Do you think, though, that she's kind of threatening to do this for her own personal benefit, or do you think it's just, like, out of spite? Yeah, I mean, I think that's one of the central questions anyone has about Suella Brahman, really, is trying to question her character and get to the bottom of what is her motivation for doing it. and I think there is going to be that personal incentive. You know, she recognises that she is probably a representative of a group of the far right of the Conservative Party that is now not being represented, certainly amongst uh, this new reshuffle that we have. Um, you know, she was sort of the last big person in a great office of state to have something like that. And so I think now, you know, she's got the name. She's got um, sort of mixed ideas and credibility um, from the domestic population. And so what she's going to try and do is kind of redefine herself in light of this. Um, You know, she's got so many options for what she could do with her future. Whether she chooses to channel that in a kind of productive, you know, national service type ethos is yet to be seen. Um, You know, she might end up working in private corporations, anything like that. But I think generally she she really could go in any direction with these things. and trying to gauge her motivations on them is, we, we can't really do it, you know, if, if everything so far of what she's done has been so uncertain, why has she done this? You know, there were um, letters in the Times and various different publications that Number 10 explicitly asked for there to be some change or some constructive change made to it, some rewording, and every time she would say no. Very much she was eroding the authority of Number 10 and in doing so kind of building up hers with the authority loss from number 10 being very well assimilated not necessarily into the powers of the home office but into the media 
image that 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 Suella Braverman was beginning to craft, sort of in opposition and defiance to Rishi Sunak, really breaking from that collective ministerial responsibility. So, yeah, I think if I had to answer the question, she's probably going to try and do it for personal gain, but um, she can play it in such a way that it goes much deeper than that. Yeah, no, for sure. I think though, I mean, her public approval ratings are pretty low. People don't really like her, but people aren't too big of a fan of Rishi Sunak either. So if she releases something that kind of makes Sunak look really bad, do you think it might help to redeem her? I mean, there's talk of her maybe trying to run for leadership herself. Do you think this might help her? Yeah, I mean, great question. It's That's really, I suppose, what the idea of motivation has come down to. Mm. And I think probably we have to look at this more in a sense of what is Rishi Sunak going to do to restore the authority of number 10, to try and kind of, um, you know, refresh this cabinet image. And I think really like a lot of that question comes down to why would you have a reshuffle? Like what is, what is the motivation behind having a reshuffle if you're going to be the prime minister? And I think it basically comes down to like four main things. Um, They are, you know, to manage your, your cabinet and your party to ensure that you have like that broad ideological house covered. And I think actually Sunet's gone the other way with this, on this one, um, and has tried to sort of distance himself from that far-right ring. He's had The Economist at the time saying that he might be the most far-right leader since Margaret Thatcher. If he's smart, he can um, basically kind of politically lightning rod most of these things on Sweller Bravman. Problem is, he's not been particularly smart. Um, you know, he, yeah. he goes back in into PMQs on Wednesday and he's like, oh, Rwanda, not gone through, but we're going to find a way to make it go through, right? And he could have let that die, and probably should have let that die with Suella Braverman, who was kind of, you know, increasingly the face of that. Um, And then I think it comes on to sort of purpose number two of performance management. Um, Suella Braverman was there picking fights with the police, the people that she's like largely meant to be in charge of, meant to have the best relations with. She was losing the grasp of like how to actually operate and perform law enforcement, basically and was isolating herself from them, stirring up huge levels of of, of problems with civil servants. Mm. So can't be seen to be in any way like much of a high performer. Um, And then again, like I think a third reason would be to to signal policy shifts as to why you'd have a reshuffle. And he's not done that. Like he's really not done that. (laughs) Like I say with Rwanda, no. Um, There's sort of much more space for him to potentially do that. And, you know, this could have been a new thing in terms of foreign policy as well, obviously with David Cameron. But all we have is, you know, Cameron coming and saying, I'm squarely behind Rishi and all of the policies that we have in the minute. The interesting thing, of course, I know we're going to get on to David Cameron, is that these were not the policies that Cameron held in his premiership or in his time as a leader of the opposition. So to what extent are international leaders going to view him with any integrity behind these policies? Um, and that's sort of really what the UK needs to develop and, and recultivate again is that international integrity, I suppose. Um, and then to refresh, which is quite an ironic one um, on this, I think, like because his refreshment is getting in someone from a time of politics that has largely passed that had a very different geopolitical economic situation to what the UK is now in um, an entirely different set of sort of leading politicians too, um, both domestically and around the world. So I can't really think we would say that this is much refresh, given that there's only really been four, potentially five, you could say, um, major changes in the cabinet, um, in the sort of big roles. But it's been actually really, really massive 
in lots of the kind of more smaller roles that we don't often hear in the headlines around a reshuffle. Yeah. Um, lots of resignations. Lots of resignations. Yeah, really good point. Huge amounts of resignations and massive sort of junior ministerial changes and um, sort of wider staffing changes too. I think the Department for Health, the Department for Transport, and there's one more department that has slipped my mind, have had basically 50% staff changes. Wow. And it raises real questions about yeah. like the efficiency of, of, of how you're gonna do that. If you want to maintain your current policy, but you're changing all of the people who have been administering that policy and have been thinking about it, is that policy gonna stay the same? Yeah, I think it has a lot to say about Rishi Sunak as well in terms of people don't want to work under his government. Um, I mean, you could argue that this might be like a last minute sort of scramble to really gain popularity before the election, but I mean, as you said, he's not really playing his cards right. He could, he, he could really try and sort of defame Suella and make himself look great, but he's not really doing that very well or at all. Um, I mean, do you think that this might help to regain popularity at all? I mean, pe people were saying like, oh, Rishi Sunak's sacked Swella Bravman. This is like one good thing that he's done. But is it enough? Yeah, it's, it's really the central question as to was the purpose of this reshuffle like fulfilled? Has it, has it done its mm. job? And the main thing was Swella Bravman had to go. Yeah. Um, it wasn't necessarily that someone had to come in, but it was... Mm what is going to be done with Suella Brahman because like the policy couldn't maintain the same she's distracting all of the media attention in the spotlight um so I think you know I think Rishi has done a very a kind of on brand quite like a, a sort of ingenious to be honest um one of the most ingenious cabinet reshuffles that I think anyone has seen um in quite some time certainly for whilst I've been following politics for maybe the last six or seven years of my life, I haven't seen anything quite so bold and nearly audacious that no one was shocking. Um, that n Everyone found pretty shocking, sorry, when they saw David Cameron get out of his, uh, out of his car at number 10. Um, and it certainly something, wasn't something that I was expecting, but if he distances himself enough from Sweller, like you really well point out, um, and if he actually regains that international credibility through Cameron and he, he really really balances the sort of authority of a guy that's been elected twice um, and had been you know deeply respected by a lot of international leaders but is also mired and remembered for like probably four main things um, Brexit, austerity, Libya and policy around China that are all like very very different to sort of world that we're in nowadays David Cameron needs to kind of reinvent himself and Rishi Sunak needs to be driving that reinvention in a direction that suits him, basically. And if he does that, then there will be less talk of Suella. And if there's less talk of Suella, then he can talk about, you know, what he's doing well and all of these different things. I think an interesting thing that I thought about in the past week was, like, for the first time, maybe the government has actually hit one of their, like, big goals that they are constantly talking about and that Rishi says, you know, judge me by my fulfilment of these goals, not by my character or all of these other things that we like to judge politicians you know nowadays by and you know to be fair to him he's actually fulfilled one of those he has yeah. halved inflation from when when it came about and that is not really being spoken about because yeah. it's all been massively overshadowed by this reshuffle and i think potentially there is like you could see maybe you would think there's like utility in him doing that because he can 
talk about other people in his cabinet now instead of just Suella Braverman who was like you know the main spotlight centre of attention um, which is maybe what he's trying to do but again I wouldn't say that's like the politically best move if yeah. you've managed to actually fulfil one of your big things in the run up to an election Okay so let's move on to Cameron so firstly why why, <laughs> why do you think he's brought back Cameron? Yeah um I mean, this is one of the big questions that I suppose everyone wants answered. Like, what was that conversation that happened in number 10? Like, yeah. I would love to know all of the fine details. Yeah, there must be a fly yeah. on that wall somewhere. I mean, a fly that takes the form of William Hague, interestingly. Um, and it shows to an extent that, like, the Tory party still has these big figures, titans of the past, that are, to an extent, still pulling at strings, or have strings that they can pull at, I would say, yeah. um, and can really broker these relations. And, you know, it's an interesting thing, first and foremost, that, like, David Cameron will remember when Rishi Sunak first came into government. Um, and when the Brexit policy came about, here was a young, ambitious junior minister who had, who was breaking from the party line. Um, and he was being fervently pro-Brexit, all of these different things. And as far as I can see, like, David Cameron and Rishi Sunak aren't immediately the most compatible. Yeah. So in terms of that question of why... Well, neither were Rishi and Suella. But in fact, like potentially there are a more natural pairing than David Cameron and Rishi were in terms of their ideological stances. So I think this is a much better attempt than we had with Suella to cover that broad ideological house. I think in a post-Brexit world, Rishi has recognised that our international clout, standing, reputation, maybe is not what it used to be. Um, and what we then can do is have someone who... I mean, this is a problem in like the nature of modern democracy, right? Is that the majority of the leaders that Cameron was there for are now not there for. And so funnily enough, the relationships that he has that are really, really good are the autocratic ones. Mm. Are, um, I mean, Netanyahu actually is an interesting one because he just sort of came in as Cameron was, was there too. So that's one of the relations that he definitely does have. Uh, he had relations with uh, MBS over both in his premiership, of course, but also over Greensill Capital, so they must be quite good chums, interestingly. Um, but I think it's you know known that this guy has a lot of foreign policy experience, whether that's yeah. good or not is up to debate. What I found really, really interesting is that during PMQs on Wednesday, following the reshuffle, um, Starmer asked, can you point to any of his foreign policy successes? Um, and Rishi Sunak got up and he gave maybe 20 seconds of deflecting the question and trying to, you know, refer it back onto Starmer as he generally likes to do now. And then instead of listing like five big things that you really should be able to do if you're appointing a foreign secretary, let alone if you're supporting previous Tory governments um, that I suppose he was in part a part of, um, you should be able to list like five big things. And Rishi Sunak comes out with, well, he hosted a successful, um, successful COP. No, not COP, uh, G7 or G20, something like that. He hosted an international convention, right? That's not the best. It's clutching, clutching at straws, yeah. Yeah. Um, and so it's, I, I think Rishi needs to, and we can probably all agree on this, he needs to better describe to the public. There's lots of tactical reasons as to why he could have done this. And I think it is still like holistically a clever thing, but he needs to make very clear to the public why this appointment has been made. You know, why is David Cameron, who's just gone and had all of these like various scandals, who was living in France after after Brexit, who, um, you know, got onto this really quite lucrative deal with Greensill Capital, and why is he now back in the Lords being paid um, like 200 pounds or whatever it is every day if he mm -hmm. wants to be, 
Um, and where is the accountability going to be? Is a real, real central question. And Sunak needs to not be complacent in thinking that because the public know Cameron, that they're sold on Cameron. Yeah. So it's that idea of reinvention in a strategic way again, I think. So, um, I mean, what do you think the rest of the kind of party thought of this appointment of Cameron? Because there was kind of a bit of a grumble about it. Yeah, <laughs> I, <laughs> I love the word grumble. I'm sure that's exactly what the leaders of the SNP, Labour and the Lib Dems are all saying, <laughs> that it's something of a grumble. Um, I, I think they would maybe take it a bit further um, and they'd say, you know, why is this happening? And fundamentally, I think the big issue that they can all point to beyond the ideological stuff that they have, beyond the fact that this was a guy who sort of abandoned his position in a time of basically national crisis, they can point to all of his failures, potentially to all of his successes if they wanted to during his premiership, but they have like a long book of things that they can take issues and umbrage with, with David Cameron, that they don't necessarily have for other foreign secretaries. Um, in quite the same extensive and exhaustive state that they do. And so their reaction is going to be, if again, they're, they're really clever about it, is going to be, okay, look, you did this, um, and now your policy is this. Like, do you believe in this? Are you doing this because of this? Is there any unity actually in the Tory government? Are you a more authoritative role in the cabinet than Rishi? Um, you know, there's lots of people asking these questions about it. Um, in the full knowledge that Rishi is maybe a bit more of a timid character by nature yeah. than someone kind of a bit bigger with a bit more gravitas like Cameron. Um, and what are the implications going to have then on, on how it's actually run as a government? Um, and so I think there's just uncertainty as to what it really, really means from the opposition benches. And I think the biggest question that they should really be focusing on, because it's the one that the public can emphasise the most, is where is the accountability going to be? Yeah. You know, it's not clear really as to whether like most of the public can tell you and i was looking at this last night and there's not like the clearest policy or idea on it we don't know really if, if, if cameron can go into the commons if so why hasn't he um if not why can't he why can't exceptions be made all of that sort of thing um is he going to have a spokesperson in there potentially there are lots of these like logistical things to do with his accountability and the very fact that he's now not elected for one, being a pretty big one. The fact yeah. that, you know, there's that he can't be like by elections, there is not 10% of a constituency that can come up and be like, we don't like this guy anymore. Like he is potentially there for life now. Mm -hmm. In what capacity he might be there for for a long time, we don't know. But I think certainly that whole life period thing is gonna be criticized massively by the other parties, already has been, and will probably give them much more credence and fuel for their House of Lords reform plans. Thank you so much for listening and thank you to Florence and Josh for coming on and talking to us about their thoughts on today's topics. You'll catch us in two weeks time for our next episode and in the meantime you can check out Back to Basics, our second podcast, where we will be talking about more theoretical aspects of politics where you can educate yourself and improve your political literacy. Make sure to check out the KCL Politics Society social media. On Instagram it's at KCL Politics. Thank you so much for listening and we'll see you next time.